Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for April 2015. I am writer, hyphen critic, hyphen practical effect. It's all done with magnets. Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi there, I'm writer, hyphen director, hyphen... Still don't have my own Melbourne International Comedy Festival show, Paul Anthony Nelson. And with us today is our very special guest... Who will be joining us... Maybe you might not even have to wait for the next segment. That's how soon... Our guest will be joining us, but before we get to them, we have just walked out of The Avengers, Age of Ultron, Marvel's The Joss Whedon, um, whatever the the title is. Paul, hit me. What did you think? All right, I'm hitting you. Now, listeners to this program know I wasn't the world's biggest fan of The Avengers. This is a film the universe seemed to flip over and everybody emptied their wallets to see, and I thought it was pretty flawed, and I'm a fan of Whedon's work, and I had a lot of expectations, and I still look at it and think of it and feel like it's an overlong half hour and an overlong... The the first half hour and the last half hour are terrible, and everything in between is really good. Not terrible, but you get my drift. I've got to say, Avengers Age of Ultron is the movie I wished Avengers was. Wow. I had an absolute blast. I couldn't read you walking out. I it's couldn't tell. We, yeah, I, I put my poker face on <laughs> deliberately. It's the same length as The Avengers, but it feels shorter. But this was the thing that most impressed me. I, I think Avengers Age of, Age of Ultron is the most comic book, comic book movie I've ever seen. Yeah. It felt like I was reading a comic book from being dropped in to characters that already have a history and they're already in action and we're already off. And, you know, people sort of saying, oh, you know, someone un- uninitiated may not be able to pick this up and get in. Or it's like, well, that's the same as a comic as picking up a comic book. Mm. If you get into comic books and you pick up issue 384 of Batman, there's 383 issues you've got to catch up on there. And yeah, and even the, the visual storytelling felt more comic booky than I've seen in a while. There's a couple of great shots where they freeze the frame down mm. and do a circle round, and it's not as forced as the one in the Avengers was. It actually looks like you are looking around a panel. Well, you know, I'm not steeped in that comic book stuff. Yeah. You know, I didn't grow up reading those, and yet I agree that it really feels like we're reading a comic more than any other film, even Ang Lee's Hulk, which you know I'm yeah. a big defender of. But big, that really kind of whacked you over the head with it. Yeah, yeah it was just panelling. This actually felt like... I was reading it, and I, didn't ha- I don't have that automatic thing in my head that goes to the comics. He's really step- stepped up the visuals. He has. And, and for a start, this one's in 235 or 240, mm. which, which uh, pleased me no end. That was something I was always, that always didn't sit right with me with the first Avengers being in 185. This film, from beginning to end, is full Whedon. Mm. It's got the Whedon wisecracks. It's got the team dynamic from minute one to minute 140. It's, it's I don't want to say joyful, but, you know, like, it's very enthusiastic. Mm. There's not, not a lot of faux darkness in there. There's, you know, the characters have wins and you feel it. And there's a little lip service to, you know, the same sort of stuff in a lot of these sci-fi films, like, you know, man playing God and if, you know, humanity playing God, I should say, or, um, uh, you know, are we worth saving? And, and you know what? Comic books explore these ideas to about a similar kind of level. And I think that even in terms of its lack of complexity, it felt like a comic book. Like, Mm. it's just a superhero comic book. I just had a great time, and that's all I can ask for, really. And and Hawkeye gets moments, (laughs) lots of moments. And, 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 like, every character seemed extremely well served Mm. in this one. Yeah, they do. Everyone feels like they've got an arc. Yeah. Which is not easy to do when you've got 70 characters. No, and I I felt they had more of an arc than they did in the Avengers Mm. um, for most of the characters. Yeah, I, I was really impressed with this. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, you, you know that I'm a huge Whedon fanboy and that, uh, like, I love 
pretty much everything he does, but not uncritically. It's not just this automatic thing. And it's the same with Marvel. Mm. The, I, I don't want to get into a discussion about this, about what Marvel is doing at the moment purely because that's another discussion that we will have yeah. at some point in the future. That will be a middle segment, folks. Yeah, we're, we've been talking about it. but it's, So it's sort of hard for me to not get into all that and talk about it. But I realised during the film that the problem that Ultron has, which I'm, I'm told is a common criticism of, of superheroes, that line of his, you want to save the world but you don't want it to change. Mm. And I was thinking about that in terms of the Marvel stuff and how if they don't keep... I keep seeing people saying that all these films are the same and follow mm. the same blueprint, and I can't believe we're watching the same films. They're, I think they did for a while, but they certainly don't anymore. I, th- I think there's a world of difference between something like The Winter Soldier and Guardians of the Absolutely, Galaxy. They're yeah. nothing alike. Phase 2 have... I think they've gone out of... And Iron Man 3 and this. I think yeah. they've gone out of their way and, to make them different. And they need to... They can't uh, rest on their laurels at any point, mm. so it can't be business as usual. And I kind of went into this hoping it would be business as usual. I was hoping it would be the first Avengers film, but bigger. Mm. And... It's uh, structurally, it's nothing like it. Mm. Like they start off as a team from yep. frame one, and and it took me a while to adjust. And I wasn't like I was loving moments, mm. but I didn't think I was loving the whole thing until it hit a point where all of those ideas synthesize into this epic third act. Uh, I, I knew I was on board. Mm. And it doesn't end with big things crashing into other big things, which is something <laughs> Marvel films used to do all the damn time. And I was so relieved that, okay, this is the big spectacle movie mm. and you didn't end it that way. You did something I actually haven't seen before. Mm. The Don, you might like the, 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 the climax of this film is not something I've seen in another movie. I love when films move pieces into position mm-hmm. so that they can, I don't mind if you spend the entire film doing that. If you've got a sequence that pays off 50 yep. things at once in the most beautifully orchestrated uh, believe it or not, I'm going to reference uh, the second Pirates of the Caribbean film here. Wow. That's, that's honestly one of the best examples of that I've ever seen. I, th- I think it doesn't get nearly enough credit for that. And and this did that with character, and it was all beautifully pulled off. And uh, yes, I am I am very much on board with this yeah. film. If, yeah, that's the thing. If, if all Avengers films like this, yeah, keep cranking them out. But again, it's that, you're right, it's that evolution thing. It's Marvel Phase 2 is very different from Marvel Phase 1, and I've, I've got to say I much prefer Marvel Phase 2. <laughs> well, While We're Young is yes. the new film from Noah Baumbach. He and I'm of... talking like William Shatner for some reason. <laughs> he of Francis Haar and uh, the Squid and the Whale and uh, mm. Greenberg. He, he's interesting because he's a filmmaker who either delights me or infuriates me. I've had films he's made end up on my... Back when I used to do worst list. Like I, mm. I, I've hated some of his work and I've loved some of his work and until now... Francis Ha was my favourite of his films. While We're Young, I think, is even better. Yeah, I'd agree with that. This is my favourite Bornback film. I think he's doing something that at first seems like it could be either a pro-hipster or anti-hipster screed. The, oh, aren't these generations different? Look mm. at what look at what the new folk do with old stuff. They repurpose things. And, you know, it feels yeah. a bit simplistic, but that's just the setup. And he sort of builds upon that as it, as it goes. Yeah, I... I found this film really uncomfortable a lot of the time because I'm closer to Stiller's age and as a, uh, like a very firmly minted member of Generation X, I related to this film in uncomfortable ways. So I, while I found it was funny at times, I, I just really got into what, what this film was trying to say about 
the gap between Generation X and Millennials mm. slash Generation Y, which I found out recently are the same thing. It's interesting because I was actually looking into writing a film about that mm. gap at one point, and I'm so glad this film is here because it, it says everything much more eloquently than I could. I'm actually curious as to see what a, a millennial would think of this film because I was very much in the Stiller Watts corner, mm. and I like I like that you've got the uh, Amanda Seyfried character who's kind of she's got more of a conscience, I guess, but. It, it, it touches on a lot of things that infuriate me about millennials, which, which was great. But it's not, a, yeah, like you say, it's not an old man's screed. It's like, I'm saying it infuriates me because I'm of the Gen X age and I can see that. And that's why I'm, I'm saying like a millennial might watch it and not take that from it at all. Yeah. There might be, they might see things in the Stiller and Watts characters that infuri- infuriate them about Generation X, whether it's their inaction or their naive, seemingly naive idealism or whatever. I just felt this was a really finely played film that unfolds in a very i feel like it unfolds in a very unconventional way particularly in the second half mm. it doesn't it like i was sort of watching it going this is it's not moving or storytelling the way i'm used to movies doing this even independent movies like it, it felt really interesting i have a question for you do you think bombach had catfish in mind when he was tinkering with the uh, maybe a little driver character Maybe a little bit. Because it certainly stuck out to me in terms of his methods. Yeah, Um, that's a good point. I I mean, the obvious interpretation is that Stiller is born back. And and I've tried to resist that, but at the same time, I really want to go through and see if there was ever an Adam Driver in his... (laughs) his, Did did (laughs) he ever mentor a young... um, It's that thing. It's like, yeah, it is that culture of, you know, digging into, you know, the idealism of... The idealism yet inaction of Gen X's and the fact that they're always kind of struggling with themselves and then millennials have all this confidence and all this sense of possibility you know they've been told they can do anything and yet most of what they do is appropriation well on that point of appropriation he's worked with Wes Anderson before Mm. and there's a piece of chamber music I'm not sure who wrote I should have looked it up beforehand but that is so iconically used by Wes Anderson in Tenenbaums Mm. I think I've got that right, and I was wondering if there was so, there was a a metatextual like the fact that Bombach uses it at one point in this film, mm. and I was like, I've, I've because there are some pieces like the Four Seasons for Valdi, yes, you yeah, hear that yeah, in yeah. every damn film. Yep. There's one this piece of chamber music I've only heard Wes Anderson use. Right, uh, it's probably being used again, but it's so iconic. And I was wondering, is that is that deliberate or a not? little bit of a poke? There has been some criticism of the ending in terms of what they actually want or in terms of something at, in terms of what they get at the yeah, ending yeah. and uh this uh God, i can't believe i'm about to use this word this heteronormative um yeah i kind of didn't want them to want that it's earned i think it's not just a this is the default Mm. Uh, happiness, yeah. but this is something that plays very deeply into what they're going through and the way in which they get it mm. absolutely ties into everything that's happened in the film beforehand. And there is an undercutting of it afterwards. Mm. Yeah, so, oh, absolutely, there is that. So I, I, I absolutely give that a pass. Yeah. I, I understand why people have had a problem with it Yeah, uh, because it's been so overused in f- films beforehand, but I think Bornback's been a lot cleverer with it. Right. And I think I, I like that it's a, in the end it's a film about the quest for authenticity yeah, and getting back to authentic selves and not just 
looking authentic or using something because it's so authentic. But, you know, even though your aims aren't at all authentic, I'm just going to say authentic again. Yeah. But it um, kind of digs into our current culture in very thought-provoking ways. All I know is my partner and I just spent the next hour and a half after seeing the movie talking about this stuff. Mm. Um, so it's definitely a conversation starter. It's, it's great. I, I think it's excellent. We now jump back in time a few days uh, to greet this month's guest, director and writer of 52 Tuesdays, Sophie Hyde. Sophie, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Lovely to have you here. Now, um, we're bringing you in at this point because you've seen uh, Mommy, the new Xavier Dolan film, and, and we thought we have to talk to you about it. Mm. What did you make of this? Are you a Dolan fan? I am a fan. Um, actually, I'm a fan. I've only seen three of his films and uh, being only 25 and making, what, five, five. or six films? <laughs> five films. He is quite prolific. I saw I Killed My Mother, which I love, and um, it's really raw, I Killed My Mother, but it often comes back to me, like I always think about it, what was going on in that film. And then I saw Heartbeats, which I didn't love. But there are still things that are really interesting about it. So you've not seen Lawrence anyways on top no. of the farm? Oh boy, you're in for some treats. But I loved Mummy. I loved it. And I saw it with like this little group that I call my film club, who would just be with a go on Monday nights to see films. And... Um, Oh my God, it's, he's so emotional, like his films are so emotional and mm. sometimes I'm watching and as a filmmaker I'm like, we would be uncomfortable making this, we would chop this out or we would want to give it kind of a, another kind of meaning. He's so emotional but you go with it, you go yes. with every fucking bit of it. Mm. And I, I loved it and all of us loved it, even though you could critique it, mm. but why would you? It's like one of the things about him is he loves his characters so much. There's such humongous amounts of love of humans that it's like, I mean, and you see it in the camera. The camera's yeah. just in love with mm, the, the yeah. cast and, you know, these beautiful costumes and this beautiful lingering on their bodies and, and on what they do. And you feel like they're the most attractive people in the world, even when they're so ugly, mm. you know, you love them because he loves them. Mm. And I find that amazing. Yeah. He's, he, that's the thing. It's You're watching it going, occasionally you kind of step out of the experience every once in a while despite yourself and mm. kind of go, gee, that's a bit on the nose. Like things are about to get bad, rain starts falling, things like that. Mm -hmm. But he makes these emotional epics that are just so bold and take chances. But they're like hurricanes of experience, I find. Like mm -hmm. he's my favourite young filmmaker at this point. I've just been so taken with his last three films. And Mommy is just like a tidal wave. The performances of... And Duval, oh God, the boy, I can't remember his name, uh, Antoine Olivier Pilon or something yeah. like that, and Suzanne Clement mm -hmm. are all like award caliber, like yeah. they're all Oscar worthy. The two women are so great and like the, some of the stuff between them, the, the relationship between them is fantastic. Mm -hmm. I loved it. But he's like, is a revelation. Yeah. Like that performance, you kind of expect him to go either one way or another. Uh, you know, you're like, he's going to be really raw or he's going to be really emotional and not be able to do that raw stuff. He's so great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's, he's bang on that yeah. kid. I don't know how old he is. He can't be that old. I he mean, for, Do for Dolan to not play that role himself yeah. <laughs> so frequently. Um, I actually saw this last year at the Melbourne Film Festival, oh, yeah. and it instantly became my number one film of the year uh, and stayed there for the rest of the year. And it kind of uh, delighted and frustrated me in equal measure when Sharmel Films picked it up because my wife is the marketing manager there. And that's the disclaimer out the way <laughs> because 
Look, I do think this is a masterpiece. It's my favourite yeah. Dolan film to date, and it's one of the few... Of all the things that impressed me about this film, I think the fact that it's so cinematic is that there are so few films with... You know, you think about home home entertainment systems and the way that we're sort of incorporating, you know, big screen viewing into our home lives. Uh, there are very few films where you say that must be seen on the big screen, mm. and even fewer dramas. Mm. And this one is so cinematic and plays with the physical form of it so much. It was really, it was an experience unlike any other I've had. And it's one of those things where, like, the aspect ratio. I get annoyed when critics write it off as a gimmick, because for me it works so well. Yes. Like, whenever that widens, you just feel this relief, mm. and then it closes, and you feel like crying. And it's very rare. So I, I saw this at MIFF last year as well, and saw it again this month. And it's almost without exception, whenever you see a, a film the first time and it devastates you, you come back to it and you're kind of ready for it. Mm. And, and you can appreciate other things, but you're sort of slightly removed. It's incredibly rare that a film destroys you more the second time mm. because you have prior knowledge. And Mommy did that to me. I mean, don't you... It's a mess. You know, what, what makes me realise what a good filmmaker is, is that I, I feel like I could analyse it and tell you things about it that weren't good. Yeah. Like, I feel like I could say, you know, he kind of points, it, it, it's sort of obvious that this is going to happen mm. or, you know, the rain starts yep. in, in this. You know, you are aware of that at certain moments and yet you still having the impact of the film is still meaningful mm. for you. Like, mm. there's no point where you, you don't like what he's chosen, mm. yeah. you know. And um, in some ways it's a, like it's purely emotional. I mean, there's this interesting thing where he sets up a kind of, you know, in the year... 2015 mm. in a fictional Canada. It sort of starts with mm. this thing that you you kind of question like, does this need to be there? This thing about the law, and then you realise like, this thing adds to the mother's dilemma in yeah. such yeah. A, such a strong way that without that you'd be a bit lost. Mm. And this thing that he he sets up, it just kind of keeps this question of like is this okay to do to a mother is to, to give them this choice is this an okay thing yeah. and it makes it quite a political film it feels like kind of an angry film mm. to me right. you know i said it was loving but there's something about it that's um more than that mm. it's uh, yeah you're right it's like a, it's like a cloud that mm. hovers over the whole film and you're just waiting for it to crack and w one of the things you were saying before about um how he writes and shoots these women mm -hmm. and how impressive uh, a 26-year-old man, you know, yeah. writing such complex well, women. 23 or 24 when he wrote this. When he wrote that. He actually explained it when he won the uh, jury prize at the Cannes Film Festival in... Last in year, 2014. And he uh, called out the president of the... I think she was the president. She yeah, was the president. Jane Campion, and said it was the piano that made me want to write complex roles for mm. women, which is uh, quite serendipitous given what we're going to be talking about in a bit. Cut to. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you um, know, I know that's a great segue, but that is such a, when I saw Mummy, one of the strangest things about it is I have a nine-year-old, nearly ten-year-old, mm. and there is a feeling between the mother and the child in this film that is so overwhelming with love and, like, it's slightly codependent, of course, yeah, and everything, yeah. but it's so overwhelming, and I knew the feeling, the precise feeling that it was, but I only know it from being a mum. I don't know it from the other side. Mm -hmm. And I know that he must have a... There is elements that are autobiographical in these kind of works, but I still can't quite understand how he can feel that, how yeah. he has created that, yeah. when I feel it as a 38-year-old mother, where I understand that only from this side. How did he find that? That is incredible. He's like a yeah. He's like some kind of crazy empath. 
Yeah. To be able to draw on all this. And, and these other films, like, like Lawrence anyways, like a man transitioning to a woman mm-hmm. and the 10-year relationship between him and his girlfriend and the fact that he still, you know, he still identifies as straight and still wants to be with her. Mm-hmm. How does a 22, 21-year-old when he wrote that relate to that? Mm-hmm. It's mind-boggling what he does and then applies his cinematic style. You're right, it's full of love and emotion, but it's also full of just unbridled confidence mm-hmm. and joy of cinema. He just loves film. Do you think that's because... There's this very rare thing that Xavier Dolan's had, which is that he made his first film at 19 and he's made five since. And he was a bit of a child star, right? So he's just gone for it. He's like, hasn't left and made something else. You know, in some ways he's been allowed to make what he wanted to make Mm. and he's kept taking that opportunity. And so it means there are things that you're like, whoa, most of people would chop that out or that's a bit weird. Mm. Like, don't do that. (laughs) Um, But actually that makes for these moments of pure beauty, like that, that, that most people are too self-conscious to yeah. do. And it never, but those moments never poke you in the eye like they do with other filmmakers. No, that's like it, true. Like you, you, other filmmakers, you watch these things and you cringe and you're like, oh, I wouldn't have done that. That scene would have been perfect if you didn't do that. But with him, every scene kind of works out perfectly. Yeah. And you're like, how the fuck did you pull that off? Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's... He trusts himself too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think. That's the thing. I think there is just and this unassailable belief in what he's doing and i think it all in the end comes i think all of this stuff we're talking about comes from a place of emotional honesty for him mm-hmm. and i think that's what gets it over yeah more than anything and he's just incredibly talented at what he does he's a witch i think he's a witch. yeah definitely <laughs> a witch Burn I mean, him! you can't look like that <laughs> no. okay so Seeing we have you here, Sophie, as the director and co-writer of 52 Tuesdays, I was wondering about films like your own and as well as films like Boyhood and uh, a few other indie sensations of the last year. Um, just wondering in this kind of climate with theatrical windows shrinking and less opportunities for indie films to kind of stand out, is it becoming more vital for indie films to have a definable hook? Like, it seemed to me when I was growing up as a film fan in the 90s, you know, all you needed was a bunch of 20-somethings sitting on couches talking, and that would be enough, you know? It's from clerks to walking and talking to swingers to... Whereas now it's like you have to you have to film a, a film, you know, once a year for 12 years. You have to film a film every Tuesday uh, for for 12 months. You have to make a, a you make a vampire movie, you got to make it in black and white and Persian language and set in an indefinable Iranian city. And I'm wondering if that is actually a forced or has become a thing where filmmakers have to think outside of the box on this sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, and it's like the rise of the niche or something. Yeah, you know, like and it's the true, high concept indie. The high concept indie. I mean, and it and and the audiences are still smaller than they were for those films, but that you're talking about mm. back in the '90s, which was much broader kind of audience for indie films, you know, across the world. Yeah, I mean, in a, in my company, we talk about it as shtick. Mm-hmm. It's like you. you like, does the film have shtick? Um, yeah, and what shtick? Like, it's just something that straight away, you know, people kind of go, oh, that's sort of interesting. What is that? You know? Mm. And the the truth is a film can't just have shtick or just yeah, have course. a high concept. I mean, then it's just going to be terrible and there's mm. loads of those. Um, it always has to come from a, a genuine place and be rigorously attacked, I suppose. So something like Boyhood, of course, you know, they really were inside their process. They really did go through that and they did it for a reason, mm. um, not just for... The gimmick. The gimmick. Mm. So the gimmick isn't enough, but 
I mean, I think it's sort of, yes, we do need that. There's so much content in the world. How do you stand out? How do you find any way that you can mm. to, to make your film stand out? And secondly, maybe there's just we're all a little bit interested in process too. What does that do to a film? Like what does changing those things change about the way that you make it, change about the narrative? Mm. I mean, that was certainly part of our intrigue, making our film. Well, I was wondering, like, certainly given how much attention both 52 Tuesdays and Boyhood got, if, if part of the appeal was that there was this implicit promise that the process had been genuine, it wasn't faked the way yeah. so many films are, and so they were kind of sold a little bit on that authenticity, and people responded to that because it's so rare these days when everything's... And it's also the fact that that process is part of the authenticity. Mm. Like that process brings extra authenticity that we don't normally have. It's like you see a boy grow up in three hours. Mm. You know, you see a relationship evolve over 12 months. Mm. It's that marrying of shtick and extra authenticity, which Mm. is enough to kind of, I guess, distinguish it from every other indie out there. But do you feel that that is, is now more vital? Like mm. that, that maybe when developing films, indie filmmakers, it's almost like a, it's almost like a responsibility now in order to be seen, to start thinking outside the square on this sort of stuff and thinking it's like, you know, about changing the model of how we tell stories. I mean, I think we're dying to change the, the model a little bit. I think part of what we're talking about with the authenticity is of course, you know, the, the reality of someone's body changing over time is, mm-hmm. is a given. And no matter what you do and no matter what you create as a, as a storyteller, that is still there, do you know? I think the truth is that the way any film is made impacts on it. We just pretend that it's not. And films like Boyhood and 52 Tuesdays don't. They, 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 they relish those things, mm-hmm. you know. Do I think it's more vital? Yeah, I think film um, makers need to find any way they possibly can to get people to see their films because it's harder and harder to do that. I also think it comes back to something else that, you know, we touched on before, which is we're a bit overseeing the films told in the same way, the same story coming out. And we want, although we want the satisfaction of story and and great story, we want a little bit to feel like it, it relates to us. It's familiar. It comes from our lives. And when you make a film that has a process or comes from a different place, you know, those things come out in it and, and we want that. It's like we talked about Mummy and, and one of the things about that film is that it doesn't feel constructed like a, thre- like a, like yep. a traditional film and you like that, you want that. You're so over, like, films feeling like they all turn and change in the same way. Yeah, that they all conform to Save the Cat. Exactly. And, uh, you know, Boyhood's a great example of that. It's like it, it can't do that because it's someone's actual life that you're telling on screen. Mm. It, it is, does feel a lot like documentary filmmaking, but you're dealing with fictional characters. Mm. And even that line is just so nice to work in and nice to watch, I think. Yeah. And possibly a, a kick-off of the natural evolution of story. Yeah. It's like now that audiences are now much more willing to see documentaries mm. at the cinema and that's become a whole burgeoning market in itself i hate to say the word market but that but it's now i guess it's making audiences much more familiar with the language of documentary and the constraints of documentary and so now merging that with fiction is less jarring Mm. to an audience that may have been 10 20 30 years ago well we all record so much i mean we're all more familiar with, with what it is like to record our lives and uh, we're all on Facebook and we use our phones for so much that it has to change the way that we tell stories. Mm. You know, it's just going to. 
one of the things about all of that, what I've said before was like the rise of the niche, you know, it's like it's this, is that some people hate it. There's like mm-hmm. a mainstream that kind of like, oh, everything's a freaking lesbian on, you know, an Iranian lesbian <laughs> or, uh, you know, a transgender mother or, you know. And the truth is that it still isn't. Like most of what we see, most of the mm. content that's been coming out to us and to the rest of the world is the same stuff, the same white boys telling the same stories, basically. Mm. So these things are still like the the um, the unusual stories in the world. They're still not that common, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah, just because there's three of them. I'm, but it even goes for that. Even goes for like blockbuster stuff. Like we go, oh, every movie's a superhero movie. It's like when last year there were what five superhero there, movies, four, uh, four yeah. out of you know a hundred. It's like, well, that's not every movie. I think Xavier Dolan made more films. <laughs> yeah. Next year he will for sure. <laughs> All right, Sophie, please tell us whom have you picked for your Hellas for Hyphenates filmmaker of the month. I've picked Jane Campion, who's a filmmaker that I often um, misspell as Jane Champion for some reason. Freudian slip. It probably doesn't help that she works with the producer Jan Chapman, which I think must be uh, an alias because the the names are too similar. I think that's where it came from because when I was growing up watching their films, like I just thought that they were the same person. I just didn't have the understanding that they were different. Yeah, they've missed a trick there for their production company name. Surely, Mm. call themselves Champion. Oh my god, yes. What's oh, they must have Champion thought of films, that. Chapman and Campion, that, surely. They must have had that conversation. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it about um, Campion in particular that... that you... We're all you say Champion. <laughs> <laughs> I nearly did. <laughs> what is it about uh, the filmmaker in question that you, uh, that you so love? Look, I... You know, she's somebody that I often think of as um, a bit of a filmmaking hero. And I think part of that must be that she's an Australian slash New Zealander. Um, And she's a woman, which is so rare here and and certainly was when I was younger. None of her films are actually, like, my favourite film, Hmm. you know. Um, None of them are singularly stand out as being, like, I just adore this film, it's in my top five. But there's something about the way that she works and the work that she makes that I always think about when I'm making films. Mm. And in particular, it's the her treatment of sex, sex and sexuality, I think. I always thought of her sex scenes as very adult scenes, like very kind of adult versions of sex. Mm. And sex is sort of ignored in Australian film in the most part. There's almost no sex. It's like we don't do it. We don't have it. If we have it, it's funny. It sort of doesn't yeah. do anything else. And she didn't do that. She always kind of investigated what that was. And those sex scenes seem to like inform the rest of the work and the rest of the story so much. And, and that's what I love about her. So there are films of hers that I just, there are these defining moments in it rather than the whole film or the story that feel really present. Mm. Wow. She's an, a fascinating filmmaker and one I sort of, I feel like I've only just come to now because it's uh, re-watching so many of her films for this. I studied the piano for English class. All the films I studied in media studies, I loved more than I would have if I'd just seen them. But the films I studied in English class, because the English teachers don't quite know how to teach <laughs> film, mm-hmm. they ruined it. And, they, and that was when I first saw the piano, is watching it in English, and I hated it. 
hated it. And re-watching it recently, I was like, how did I possibly hate that film? Like, I can't fathom not loving that film. But as a teenage boy, it would be hard to love that film yeah, the first sure. time you see it, yeah. you know? Like, again, it's very adult. Mm. Like, And it's so much from the woman's point of view, which was we hadn't learnt to, to read stories like that at that time, I don't think. You know, like, it's mm. it, it was still very unusual. Um it is a great, great film, um, but I agree. I mean, I watched uh, for English. We did uh, Dead Poet Society, and yeah. I loved it. <laughs> that was pretty much it's a just much poetry. easier sell. Yeah. <laughs> There's something incredibly, almost off-puttingly real about her films, particularly her early ones. She represents a very specific type of. Uh, and I know she's from New Zealand, but um, but of course we claimed her. You know, she she worked. Well, she made her first yeah. film in Australia yeah. and her her short films in Australia. So. Yeah, so we can we can justify that. I, <laughs> I know and New Zealand is a very sensitive when we claim everything of theirs. <laughs> but she is all... a truly trans Tasman filmmaker, though, yeah. because she didn't. I, I believe she moved here like quite young as well. Mm. well I'm not sure. Well, she, she, she lives in New school. Zealand now. She lives in New Zealand uh, now. Maybe she, she lives between. Yeah. She is. She For me, she works across both countries. Mm. Yeah. Well, she, yeah, when she made um, uh, Sweetie, which mm. is her first feature film, and, and the shorts she made before then, um, they represent this very, t- very sort of 1980s, 1990s type of ugly realism where you feel it's too mm. it, it, it's almost too uh, tangible and relatable everything that's in there very and uncomfortable I, yeah and 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 it's and i got that watching angel at my table mm. as well which is a new zealand film uh miniseries which which was also a film and yeah at the beginning of that there's something very very difficult about and i and i can't quite put my finger on what it is it's just that she gets right into what's happening and is in so unapologetic about showing you the world in minute detail. But the weird thing is it's not in a social realist way. It's mm. very stylized. Yes. Stylized, yeah. And that's the other thing. Like, there's shades of David Lynch at times, particularly in those early films, in the way things are framed, yeah. and the way there's, there's a lot of, you know, I think there's a lot of blue velvet in Sweetie, you know, at there times. There is, with the compositions. I think, yeah. Right. And I really responded to that. And the performances often come under that banner as well they're uncomfortably real at times mm. and yet stylized they mm. are they're yeah. unco- there's this realism it's frankness i think is what it is mm. she's very frank about things and um and maybe we australians and new zealanders are more frank in general mm. you know in our filmmaking mm. but yeah there's this realism but it still feels like it's heightened it still feels like something else is going on you're inside a story world yep. yeah yeah the uh, I'm, I'm loath to say this because i'm uh People, I've met a lot of people who characterise film criticism as talking about the shots and nothing else. Yeah, like where did where did where was the camera placed? But her camera placement is is amazing. When she her establishing shots in particular, the way in which she chooses to introduce you to a place mm. is just so unusual but so perfect. In that she she sort of points you at the thing she wants you to notice, mm. and it's not necessarily what's important about what's to come, but. There's always some sort of meaning in there. I think unusual choices is a great way to describe her career. Yeah. Mm. Like, throughout her career, and we'll get to some of these films, like, I liked some of her films a lot, lot more than others. Mm. Some left me completely cold. Um, But her style is always... I think she's an actual visionary. Like, I think she is a true artist. Mm -hmm. There's... Her films are full of unusual original choices and spins on things and, and bizarre relationships and often... In some films, I'd be wondering where the hell is this coming from. Mm. Like, um, 
like by all accounts, she had a pretty happy childhood. Um, <laughs> you wouldn't know it from her films, mm-hmm. even her short films. It's just some really screwed up dynamics. The short film Passionless Moments is, is one of my favourite films ever and always sticks in my head. So when I say mm. she, it's not one of my favourite films, that is possibly my favourite short film ever made. Yeah. I love that film and I saw it when I was at film school and like everything about it just felt like this is it. This is what filmmaking could do. Like you don't have to tell the same kind of naturalistic story. You can tell a story from inside different people's points of view and with this very gorgeous sort of stylized voiceover over the top. It's such a great, great film. And give enough of a snatch of enough details in a snatch of a slice slice of life that you get everything you need to know about that person yeah. at that time. Yeah. That's that's my favourite of her shorts. I really, really dug that. Yeah. And I love that she goes into this sort of almost fantasy sequences in every single film. Yeah. Like there's always an animation or a or, or stop motion or something. Or a dream like, sequence. Or yeah. A, like, like that portrait of a lady. There's oh. a whole bit where it goes and it's like some, you know, um, Super 8 looking kind of Lumiere film almost. Yes. So with, with these that's really it. heightened sound effects. Mm. I like, saw that in the trailer and that stuck with me more than films I saw that year. Yeah. It was the trailer for, like, of, you know, John Malkovich with the with the spinning, with the spinning thing umbrella and, and, and the mouth falling talking. into the. And she'll only do it once per film, like in the piano. The daughter is telling the story about uh, how her mother lost her voice. There's a little animation, and you always forget it until you get to that oh, point. Yeah. I've gotten in the animation. Yeah. And in the cut, the ice skating. Yep. Yep. Sequence with the the husband keeps running over the the wife and severing body parts. And so it's funny. Like in the cut is actually. This is going to sound weird and people will criticise me for it, but it's probably my favourite of her yes. films. And um, it, which is so strange because the story is so meaningless in that film. The mm. story just, it's a thriller, right? Yeah. yeah. But I didn't even know I was watching a thriller. Yeah. And the end, therefore, is just like, what the hell's happening here? <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's right. This is a thriller. Yeah. Like, the end just feels completely tacked on. Like, it's not even, it doesn't even exist. The story doesn't work at all. But there's something about the film that's so brilliant. Like, the relationship between Meg Ryan and, and um, Mark, Mark Ruffalo. Ruffalo, fantastic. Like, their stuff is so intriguing and great. And it's shot, like, Beautiful. I mean, it's really dated now, but beautiful. Yeah, I, and there's the wild card that is um, Jennifer Jason Lee yeah. in that relationship as well. It's pretty much what you would expect if you gave Jane Campion, uh, you know, a studio erotic thriller. <laughs> yeah, it's like it focuses completely on the relationships. Fuck the story, yeah. and it makes thriller New York look different. Yeah, it's got this tilt shift kind of thing going mm-hmm. on, and yeah, it really draws you into this kind of world. I'm so disappointed to hear you guys like this film. Not because I didn't like it, but because I wanted to shock you by telling you that uh, how much I loved it. Oh. It's such a it's it's was derided upon its release. Yeah, it was. And and, and I don't and, get it. No, well, <laughs> if it wasn't for the piano, I would call this in my eyes her masterpiece because mm-hmm. there's the style of it. Like as you say, it's a thriller, but. It's not really a thriller. That's just sort of... You just don't it, care about that but bit it of is, it at all. But it is a thriller about being a woman in the modern world. It's a thriller yeah. about being a woman. It doesn't matter about this person that's there and who it is yeah, at all. And who's cutting heads it off and all that It is an sort of absolute thing. thriller about being a modern woman. And that's what's mm. so beautiful, I mean, about it. Those scenes like there's this head chop scenes, which yeah. are so sort of tense and, like, scary and, and erotic at the same time. Mm. And you're like, whoa. And, the, I mean, I said I love her sex scenes. The sex scenes in this film are are a bit incredible. Yeah. <laughs> like, Mark Ruffalo, you kind of just fall in love with him in this film. The, uh, but it's, yeah, it's such a, a, a dense 
the film. And it's getting, you know, gender politics and victimization and power struggles. And, mm. and she's got a style that, um, you know, I'm a huge, huge David Fincher fan and Seven still blows me away to this yeah. day. Um, but I feel like this is like seeing another... Another seven. That's the thing. It takes like the seven template and goes, what would Campion do with it? Yeah. That's what she does with it. It, it is different. It is Campion. And I'm amazed this hasn't been sort of rediscovered and championed. Mm. Championed. There we go. <laughs> championed as, as uh, yeah, this lost classic. And Meg Ryan's terrific too. She's fantastic in it. Yeah. She's not so a performance and that's not that anyone would expect. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, no, yeah. I love it. I always reference it when we're, make, when we're working. I'm always like, mm. you know this moment <laughs> in the cut? Uh, yeah. But, um, yeah, it's, inter- it's interesting, yeah, because I, I revisiting the piano. Like I loved Angel at my table. I, yeah. I think too. I love Angel. At my that's table. my personal favorite. In the cuts, my second favorite, and I really like Sweetie too. It's mm. it's such a. I didn't, and and that's the thing you you find you don't. I didn't expect Campion to have a sense of humor. She's pretty funny. That's yeah. the thing, and that's the thing you discover as you start watching a film. It's like, oh, no, actually, she's actually pretty funny. The thing that always happens is that people start to take a filmmaker and push them into one sort of category, mm. like, oh, she does this, mm. and forget about the rest of it. Of course, there's humour, yeah. Which, which is kind of nice. I like forgetting that, because when I watch her films, the, the laughs are so unexpected, because mm. I always forget how mm. funny she yeah. is. And uh, Sweetie in particular is hilarious at times. Mm. And then, I mean, Angel at the Table, obviously uh, darker, but such a beautiful story, and mm. and... and uh, the three-part structure really works, but and I've got to say, the p- coming to the piano though, the piano was the one I was underwhelmed with. Really? Mm. Yeah, I like again. It's it's one of these films that, in terms of style, it looks amazing. Mm-hmm. It sounds great. It's the performances are all top drawer. I'm not sure about Kaitel's accent, but we'll move along. <laughs> I was loving it as a, as a love story between a woman and the piano. Mm. Like this was yeah. the thing she brought with her from you know, being wrenched out of her homeland and this was the this was the talisman. This was the thing she brought with her along with her daughter. She may even love it more than her daughter. Um mm. you know, she's first time she meets this man who's brought her over, this new husband, he won't even he won't even bring this thing with them. He's immediately denouncing this mm. thing that she loves. And you see her looking out the window at this thing. And then, you know, Harvey Cartel brings the piano in and he's making, he's essentially prostituting her and the things she'll go through to get the piano back. Mm. And through all this, I'm really digging it. Mm. Then she suddenly falls for Harvey Keitel and the film immediately stops making sense for me. Mm. And it seems to be this thing, and she does it with Holy Smoke too, where she seems to start, the plot points start to drive the story, which is really weird because that's not how I think of Campion. Mm. And in her best films, like in the cut, like what we've been saying within the cut and, um, and Angel at my table and sweetie, you think of her as generally more organic, but these two films in particular, characters make really puzzling decisions mm-hmm. to kind of meet those, you know, it's like, oh, the story needs to go here now. Like mm-hmm. Sam Neill all of a sudden becomes a mental case, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like he's not shown this to this point. He's always, he's actually, he's repressed and, you know, he's thoughtless, but he's not a bad guy. And then all of a sudden he turns into a bad guy. Mm-hmm. And it's just, the film just completely stops making sense for me. And by the time I got to the end, I, I was sort of cease to be interested. Mm. I think part of the, the, the way that she explores character is about that people 
can genuinely surprise you, that people are surprising and they don't always do what you expect or anticipate. That does come up in a lot of her films, I think. Mm. It's a hard thing to watch. Yeah. And it's true. Like, she's not driven, you know, by story. And mm. so sometimes when, when if in a filmmaker that's not driven by story, the story sings too loud mm. because it's like it still has to happen. You yeah. still have to have the story. So it's like, oh, let's just get through that bit until it makes sense again so we can do the interesting yeah. stuff. You do feel that in her films, I think. Um, mm. You know, in the cut was the example. Like, you do feel that in that film. And I think it is true of the piano too. Mm. I understood her falling for Harvey Keitel, I think. You know, there's so much. I always think of just that moment with the stocking thing. You know, there's this, like, shot with the The hole hole in in the the stocking. stocking. And, um, you know, she is just a woman, like, dying to be um, touched without understanding or realising that, Mm. I think. And and it's true, if you go with that, you, you leap. Yeah. But otherwise you don't. I was tied to the piano love story. I was yeah. like, no, this is what this film is. And it's like, yeah, I guess it was kind of, yeah. I had trouble going with that leap. Yeah. I, yeah, I see what you mean. I don't know. I, I went along with it. It's so weird hearing myself talk about how much I love this film now after mm-hmm. years of this high school memory. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I did go along with it. Um, even though I do find that romance and particularly the way it's resolved. In fact, just the way it's resolved mm. a little strange. But I sort of go along with it because it's all about not just her love affair with the piano, but how she relates to people through that music. So her daughter dances to it and he rescued the piano and wants to hear her play it. And it's sort of Mm. the relationships are dictated by how people relate to the piano. And so Mm. everything seems right if you're looking at it through that Mm. prism. I found it really interesting watching this with... Bright star, mm. and this was a strange one. I know you probably think I'm a genius who's right all the time, yes. but five years ago when I saw Bright Star, I did not like it at all. I hate it, and and now I think it's it's brilliant. Like rewatching really? it, it was like a new film. But that's another film about people relating. It's so different from the piano. I mean, I think time wise, it's set maybe thirty years apart mm. on different sides of the globe. Mm. And one is about passionate people and this passionate music and people, you know, mm. with so, the passion is worn on the outside. And Bright Star, which is the, the, the film about Keats and, and his love affair with um, uh, Fanny, Fanny Brown, Brown. Mm. Uh, which is about, oh, Fanny Braun, sorry, which is about people who are repressed and the poetry is quite, it's very structured and very contained and they have all this passion but they have to fit within these very neat little boxes. And I find them very interesting to watch back to back because I think she's doing something very, very different, but they feel like uh, mirror images. Mm. Right. They couldn't look more different, yeah. those mm. two films. No. When you think, like, I, just thinking on them and, and the, the things that are left in my mind from them, they just couldn't look any like more different. Mm. Like, I never really thought of them as being so close together in time. You know where they're set. I, I had to look that up. It didn't occur to me. But it's also that yin yang thing that you're talking about in terms of one's contained, one's outward. But also in the piano, the color palette well, for both films, the color palette's the opposite. Yeah, they like, are. Bright Star is just bursting with colors. That's right. Yeah. And there's a freedom and, in the in the camera and stuff in mm. that that moves all the time. Mm. You know, whereas in the piano, there's this um, formalism you mm. know, that goes on. And everything's so grey and blue and mm. Uh, mm. yeah. Bright Star left me a little cold, actually, yeah, and I too. felt like it was the the romantic quality of it didn't sit right with me. It was mm. so romantic, mm. you know, like, and it, and I loved I loved both of the actors in it, and I loved their performances in it, but somehow I just I never like sunk into it. 
Yeah. I see. I have a, this is the thing, and the same went with Portrait of a Lady. Every Campion film that I was underwhelmed with, with the exception of Holy Smoke, which we'll talk about. I think I was talking to you off air about my disdain for high school films in yeah. general. And another another genre I just cannot get into is kind of the gothic romantic Victorian era dra- romantic drama. Mm, they yeah. just do nothing. For, I just can't get interested in that world. It's just nothing about... Like, there's a reason... The only Scorsese film I don't like is The Age of Innocence. Mm. <laughs> it's just something about it. And so I, I think between The Piano, Portrait of a Lady and Bright Star, there just comes a point where I just stop caring. Mm. Everything about, I think Bright Star is a beautiful looking film. Mm. It's beautifully mounted. The actors are terrific. I think that film only really comes alive whenever Paul Schneider's around. <laughs> and, and those, they're having that dynamic. You know, mm. he's, he's constantly, like, I think that's when the film, because there's, I don't know, there's conflict there. When it's people write, reading poems to each other, I don't care. Mm. Um, and so there's that's a what lot I thought of the that first that time. Film. And then the second time, it, I suddenly felt there was all this other stuff going on where it's, I mean, it is a love triangle with Keats mm. at the centre, mm. you know, uh, Paul Schneider's character is is in love with Keats. You know, yeah. Everyone's in love with Keats. Yeah. <laughs> I think the poetry is, rather than just being there to, because he's a famous poet and we need to cover that, I think it's always used very cleverly and very it's, it always relates to where he is at the time because there, you know, there is so much poetry, there's so many letters you could draw from mm. And I think every time you hear a piece of poetry, it, it, it's always very telling at where we are in the story and where we're about to go. Mm. Portrait of a Lady, I, I, I'm kind of... I don't know, I, I didn't like it overall, but I was so fascinated by the whole thing because there's always something really interesting going on. Like, she mm. elevates the material. She so does. It's, it's sort of, for me, it's not a hugely successful film. Mm. Nicole at the centre of it, I'm just not, I don't quite buy into. Mm. Like, um, but you're right, there is always intrigue in, in what she presents. Barbara Hershey's terrific. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Anne Malkovich. It's, it's actually yeah. got a, one of those amazing casts, like Christian <laughs> Bale and Viggo Mortensen, and like, mm. what? It is an amazing cast. Yeah. 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 Um, then it's one of those films, yeah, I think that sequence is probably my favourite bit, the yes. sequence we were talking about earlier, because mm. it's just so inspired and bizarre. And I think coming from the trailer for that um, in my head from years earlier, I think I expected a lot of the film to be a stylistic flight of fancy. Yeah. Yeah. And so when it wasn't, it, it was a bit disappointing. And I, I could have done with a bit more of that, yeah. that film. Yeah. yeah, I feel like it was a bit... Like, it, it does have these other elements, but it's a bit straight or something. Yeah, like, it's very dry. You kind of like, you've got this great cast and... You sort of do not much. Mm. With and it. it's enormously long, too. Like, I mean, it's weird. You're like, the, the only film she's made that's longer than this is Angel at My Table, and that seems to fly by in comparison. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this just seems to go on forever. Yeah, Hol- Holy Smoke, I didn't find a lot to love. Again, with all of her films, even when they're not working, there's still something interesting happening. But... I didn't revisit this one. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's one of those films that, like, there are things about it that stay in my mind. And I remember seeing it and not loving it as a whole film but there are things like the weeing moment you know which, yeah there are things that are re- very visceral i mean she's a very visceral filmmaker mm. that's why she and dolan had a little love affair <laughs> with her, you know at Cannes. like there's there's this kind of this fascination with the body and with what's um how our emotions and our bodies impact on what we choose and, and who we are and that's very much evident in holy smoke there's something that feels very uncomfortable about that film mm-hmm. I've never seen a filmmaker, uh, a female filmmaker, so taken by the female form. I don't mm. think I can't think of a film in which the lead 
actress doesn't appear naked. Maybe, uh, yeah. Or Bright Star, actually. Bright Star, they don't um, but, but yeah, yeah, yeah she's very real the film. Yeah. yeah, she's got this uh, this eye that is so far away from the male gaze, and it's not. You don't feel. I don't know. You don't feel intrusive. It just feels matter of fact. You're I right. I mean, she is very fascinated. I mean, she's fascinated with bodies in general, but in particular, women's bodies and mm. what they do. Um, but she's not the. She's not like saying women are strong, feisty character. You know, mm-hmm. she very much does something else, which is like she kind of loves men in an unusual kind of way mm. and, and, and allows them to love women in a way that's not like you have to be nice all the time about everything. Mm. And that's very present in all her films, you know. It's not easy to go like... Um, strongly fighting for the sisterhood. Yeah. It's actually a real exploration between men and women most of the time, mm. and in particular of women. I, I found yeah. every one of her films, I almost feel like her, 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 leading, her lead character is a woman who is go, trying to go her own way, and it's almost like the woman is a, space, is a spacecraft, and the men that come in her life are like meteors. Mm. And it's the thing. It's like it's, it's, it's this woman trying to just move in a straight line and do what she wants to do with her life, and these men just crash into her. Mm. And the, most of the time when men enter women's lives in, the, in Campion's movies, it is like a meteor hitting a ship. It's quite abrasive. Mm. It's Mark Ruffalo going, lady! Mm. And, you know, banging on the car and it's, you know, and it's um, uh, Harvey Keitel roaring into the airport backed by Neil Diamond and collecting, and, you know, it's, and it's always these really kind of, you know, visceral mm. arrivals and, and there's this instant kind of conflict. And, yeah, I, th- I find that fascinating, a fascinating theme to have. And even in its gentle way and bright star, you know, Keats and Brown in particular are meteors that crash into Fanny Fanny Braun. Yeah, right. Um, there it, is um, very much a uh, the, the characters, the female characters, are a little bit difficult as yeah. well. They always are, and don't always of, know what they want. Like no, Ada, they don't know. Ada in the piano is very; she's very petulant and doesn't seem to know what she wants from one thing from like to yeah. another. Mm. Even and at the, the end of the film, I'll go down with the piano. No, I'll swing up. It's like yeah, yeah. and the, and the men are kind of abrasive, mm. and there is always a conflict between the men and women. Even if there's like a lot of love or a lot of yeah. affection, it's it's deeply conflicted. But the the female characters are deeply conflicted characters mm. all the time. Um, yeah, and the men they, they're abrasive. They're very loving, but they're not like yeah, they're not like I'm gonna put the cup of tea on for you. Mm. Like yeah, it's very <laughs> different. I feel like uh, the most recent thing she made the um, TV series Top of the Lake mm. uh, because we got to spend was it, six hours with her themes and her characters mm. that everything we've just been saying really comes together mm-hmm. in that where you've got this this character who is so damaged but doesn't know what she wants and you've got these men who are just so you you don't you have no idea well you sort of know yeah. what they want but their motivations are never clear from like David Wenham's character yeah. just changes every 5 minutes yeah. and they cra- and again it's that crashing of their cinder off course all yeah. the time yeah that was it was like, an interesting exactly. series it was um it took me a while to get into I wasn't really on board with it until the ending. I oh, so I haven't seen the last episode. I'm not yeah. gonna I will not yeah, say we won't spoil, but so I, I I was the opposite. I loved yeah. the very beginning. Yeah. yeah. And then I went off and then I kinda came back, but when I came back I noticed like there are things that aren't coming together in this. Like there are moments and scenes that you're like, is, is that supposed to be like this? Mm. And and in particular it's interesting that we were talking about the central character and the the, the men in her life because there's this great thing where she's a, a 
she's had a, a horrible kind of past and that's to do with men. And yet this one boy comes into her life that she's known back then and there's, there's a complete acceptance of him in some ways into mm-hmm. that. And that really typifies Jane Campion. It's like this hatred and this horribleness around men and a love yeah. at the same time and those things sit really comfortably near each other. Mm-hmm. There's no kind of like one is one or the other mm-hmm. going on. And he was so fantastic, this character, until partway through where I was like, did he just say he loves her forever or something? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember that scene? Yeah, yeah. And you're like, what? <laughs> I'm not sure what to do with this. But, he, um, it's, but I think yeah. it's very similar. There's strange shifts again. Yeah, it is. And mm. she does do that, yeah. Without, you know, giving away anything about, about the ending, I think... Uh, the reason I responded to it at the end is kind of, kind of similar to In the Cut, where the plot I realised by the end of Top of the Lake, I wasn't actually interested in the mystery mm. or what it's happened. it's completely predictable. Yeah, well... I, I, I never was... care about that part of it. Yeah. You know, they're doing this stuff like with the girl that's missing. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not, I, it's irrelevant to me. And that's probably why, as a long-form series, it's not, it doesn't entirely come together, mm. is because it stays too irrelevant to me. Yeah. And it's like her, her entire career is almost a... A rumination on gender, yeah, gender politics mm. in yeah. in the modern well, not only the modern world, but yeah, it is last... on the modern world though, isn't it? I mean, I feel like every story there's these historical stories, but she is very much commenting on the modern world, like mm. everyone is, but it's it's upfront. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, which which movie is it that starts? Portrait of a Lady. Is it Portrait with... of a Lady? Well, I was wondering whether they keep using that, and then they just kind of abandon it. Yeah, I'd forgotten well, about it until just that second when you said that, yeah. Sophie. Or, uh, the, All the women's the women, the modern oh, women yeah. talking. Start of the movie, and then you go into this period film and forget about that yeah. completely. It's yeah, mm. maybe maybe that's what it is. It's saying. All in these historical films, it's really about us now. Yeah. Whereas I, mean, I didn't feel it with the rest of the film, though. It's like yeah, I was yeah. taking more and more out of it. I kind of wish they would. Maybe she put that in because she. <laughs> I mean, I'm being I'm being a bit obtuse because, of course, all films essentially do that. Uh, like uh, every historical film is essentially about us, but it's the way in which she makes it so overt. I think they all should be about us, and they all are. Mm. It's just some filmmakers are saying, yeah, remember, we're talking about ourselves. Mm. And other filmmakers, like, are saying, are trying to pretend it's, yeah. it's, it's a genuine film about the history or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's it good. is interesting that we had all such similar, I mean, yeah. really different takes, but that similar feeling of, like, none of the films are like, God, look at that film, that's it, that's mm. everything. But there's just something about her and what she makes and the way she works. And also, she's the first. She was both the first woman to win the short film Palm Door at Cannes, and yeah. the first woman to win the feature film Palm Door at Cannes. Yeah, there you go. One of very few women to have even been at Cannes. Yeah. Let's yeah. face it, and to have been nominated for an Oscar. It's and it's, president of the jury. It's still so rare, do you know? And she still is. And in Australia, we still don't have a, a huge number of fe- of women making films. Mm. So. And yet we've got, I think we've got proportionally more than a lot of other countries, including the US. Mm. So, yeah, it's, that's the thing. I mean, she's a massively admirable figure Mm. in terms of her career, in terms of, like, I love that she is so bold and identifiable. She is a true auteur, Mm. which I love too. And yet she does does this thing where she just chooses really different stories and really different mm. things all the time. And so you're not like, she makes this kind of film. And you have to dance around. And different audiences would come to her with different kinds of work, I imagine. Mm. You know? yeah. 
Well, it's been amazing to revisit all these films and, <laughs> and change my opinion completely. <laughs> I'm now like the too. biggest Campion fan in the world, which <laughs> I did not predict. Um, so I'm very excited about that. Sophie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And we'll see the rest of you next month. After all, this thing we call Samurai Honor is ultimately nothing but a facade.